This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books, with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the very first Danger Close, Beyond the Books, with Jack Carr. Thank you so much for joining me. So I wanted to do this podcast because I talk to incredible people all the time. I have had the great fortune of stumbling across a great many very inspirational people and this first guest is no exception. I couldn't think of a better person to have on than my friend, Katie Pavlich. She is the editor of townhall.com. She is a Fox News contributor and just hosted Fox News Primetime Live for the entire week uh, in February. So uh, her book, Fast and Furious, Barack Obama's Bloodiest Scandal and Its Shameless Cover-Up is an incredible book. We discussed this. We also discussed her second book, Assault and Flattery, The Truth About the Left and Their War on Women. So we did this at SIG last uh, month and had a great time out there touring SIG, got to shoot some machine guns, got to shoot some pistols, got to shoot some rifles, and got to do a little hunt out there in New Hampshire. So without further ado, let's hop into the podcast. All right, here we are. We are live. I am at Sig Sauer here in New Hampshire with Katie Pavlich. Rock on. Yeah, thank you so day. much for, uh, for yeah, coming, coming out here and, yeah. and for doing this podcast, too. Thank you. You came much farther than I did, so well, we, it, we're I, all happy to have everyone here having a good time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that flight from Salt Lake oh, to here to Boston gets so much done. It's so nice to be on that flight yeah. uninterrupted. They bring you wine, mm-hmm. and you can just work. Yeah, I think on the, the cross-country flights, they bring drinks. Ours ours was an hour long, and there were no drinks. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you were started asking for drinks on that one, they would call you an alcoholic. Right. They'd yeah. be like, yeah. Well, I guess that for me, I started at like 8 in the morning yesterday or 9 in the morning. There are no rules in the airport. Yeah. No, no rules. I, I, so. <laughs> so I keep telling myself. <laughs> yeah, awesome. just keep repeating it. Yeah. No, so thanks so much for, for doing this. So we're yeah. at 6 hour. We're going to shoot the... Uh, their new, uh, their new machine guns, mm-hmm. which are incredible. Yeah. And I uh, had Ron Cohen, the, the CEO, today walk us through those yeah. and that whole project, which is amazing. And, you know, I love this place. Of course, we're surrounded for people that are watching this on video. We're in this room when you walk into SIG that has a bunch of their guns on the wall, which is really cool. So my connection here is that I carried that 226 for so long in the SEAL teams. Mm-hmm. So I have that that connection to uh, to this company through that that sidearm so yeah that's um, awesome so i yeah i love that thing and of course now the the p320 line and 365 line are awesome and i incorporate them in the books just because it was very natural but mm-hmm. um speaking of books so let's go let's let's start at the beginning yeah so okay. <laughs> let's start at the beginning with katie All right. so you grew up in arizona i did grew up in arizona did you grow up hunting stuff. i did yeah grew up hunting with my dad um it's actually pretty funny because my dad uh, is a big firearms guy like realizes his own ammo and you know has all these like engineering stuff going on that lots of stuff that I don't know about and uh, my mom's side of the family too are big gun, gun rights supporters for like generations mm-hmm. and so grew up hunting with my dad and uh, there's actually a pretty funny story about the first time he took me hunting so I got my first hunting rifle when I was 10 years old and I came downstairs and they hit KDP like embroidered on my gun case on my rifle case and he was so excited and I'm the oldest I have a, a younger brother and I'm the oldest kid and he was so excited to get me out hunting that he put me in for elk and deer in Arizona. You're never going to get accidentally. it. Accidentally. Yeah. Right. He, like, she's not going to do both. Or he just he just didn't look at the dates properly because he was so excited. <laughs> and uh, I get drawn for both on the same so weekend. Awesome. Now, out west, as people know, 
things are very far apart. So the, the elk unit was out near Williams and the deer unit was on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Now that's like a six hour drive. Yeah. Granted, we have four days to make this hunt happen. Nice. And of course, knowing my dad, he asked me, well, do you want to do both? And I'm like, yeah, obviously we're going to do both. So we're going to do both. So we go to uh, hunt elk for two day, for a day and a half, basically. Don't get one drive six hours to the north rim of the Grand Canyon, wake up the next morning, shoot my deer, my first deer ever, amazing, get it all packed up, and then drive all the way back to Williams. And it's the last day of the hunt. It's a Monday morning. It's hot outside in September. The elk are all bedded down. Like, the hunt's over. I'm not, it's not happening. But the whole weekend, I'm on my first hunt. I'm, like, squawking away on this elk call. I'm being super obnoxious. I don't sound like an elk at all. I just sound like an annoying 10-year-old. <laughs> or 11, I was 11. And um, so my dad parks us at this tank and shuts the door. And we, we're like, not, you know, we're not being careful because it's like hot and it's over. Parks me at the tank by myself to go get lunch. Sits me there with my rifle and I'm still squawking away on this thing. I'm there all by myself and I hear something call back. I'm like, oh my God. There's something coming. I called an elk in. And so my dad's like tranching up with the lunch. I'm like, dad, sit down. There's one coming. And he's like, whatever. There's no way, you know. And within like three seconds of him sitting down, this elk comes out of the forest. And he was like gobsmacked and got my elk. So I got an elk and a deer in the same weekend, the first time I went hunting. And it was awesome. That is awesome. And in Arizona. And in Arizona. Yeah. So it was really fun. That is awesome. And you continue that through the rest of like junior high and high school? Yeah, junior high, high school, college. Uh, I went on a Texas whitetail hunt with him about two years ago with Silencer Co. Mm -hmm. And that was really fun. You guys did a video. Yeah, I know. We did a video there. And then I think we're going to go antelope hunting in Wyoming uh, this year. So very excited. And pheasant hunting in New Hampshire. Tomorrow. Tomorrow, uh never been pheasant hunting before. Oh, nice. Okay. So I never hunted with a shotgun. Oh wow. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be awesome. Everybody get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, no, it's gonna be it's gonna be chilly tomorrow. So it's gonna yeah. be a good one though. We'll, we'll see get... if I with all the layers, if I can lift my arms up to get the shotgun yeah, in yeah. the right position. But, exactly. No, that'll yeah. be super fun. Yeah, so there's lots of good times hunting with my dad and awesome. Um he took my brother hunting too and yeah. just lots of good stuff. Actually, I went hunting with my now that I'm remembering this, I wasn't actually hunting because I didn't have a tag, but my brother and his fiance um had a deer and javelina tags in Arizona over Christmas and New Year's. Oh, nice. And so me and my husband went and we like sat on the blind with my yeah. brother and they were glassing for us. And nice. so we had that like short day long hunting trip recently. Yeah. So that was fun. Nice. Yeah. Nice. yeah. All my stuff got canceled this year. My Argentina was supposed to be next month Yeah, got in March done. Uh, it got canceled. My mule deer for Colorado canceled like yeah. the day before. Wait, what That's were you hunting in Argentina? That was going to be Red Stag. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's pretty cool. incredible. So you're rescheduling it or? Yeah, well, yeah, it'll be pushing a year. Next year. Yeah, yeah. it's a good time to be there. And yeah. uh, we're lucky because it's uh, uh, that hunting operation in Lanai, Hawaii, the Pineapple mm-hmm. Brothers thing that, that yeah. I'm a partner in. Um, through that, we have a connection to this really cool lodge down in Patagonia. Oh, my and God. So that would be that. So Amazing. we'll push it a year. And, yeah. Uh, and I was going to, to see be, if right? I could incorporate it into the next novel, too. So it was going to be research uh, as well. So I was going to go down and see, yeah, maybe one of the characters can end up here. And, you know, we'll we'll see. So they'll just, they'll just wait a year. Yeah, that's really it's cool, a, though. It's a good spot. Yeah. It's a good spot. Amazing. And then I always want to ask you about journalism. Yeah. So yeah. did you know early on that you were going to get into journalism? Or how did that how did that progress? So what do you mean by early on? Like, when I wanted to be a SEAL and wanted to write since I was a kid. seven. Yeah. You know, I... No, I don't think I, um, like I was always kind of like writing in a journal, 
And that's something that my dad does. You know, my mom has a, a degree in English and was a professor for some of her career. Um, but I, I don't remember as a kid wanting to be a, a journalist. I remember wanting to be a, like a weather lady, like <laughs> the weather map. So I guess nice. that kind of counts. Um, yeah. But, you know, my career path was one that I kind of like stumbled into. But then it was like, oh, yeah, duh. This is obviously what I should have been doing. Uh-huh. So, you know, went to college because that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go to college and uh, was a business major for a while. Didn't want to do that. Got to my second accounting class and decided that the charts were too much for me. Oh, and uh, so then I switched to um, political science minor with a major in broadcast journalism. And the reason I made that switch was, A, I was unhappy with my current degree path. And also I went to a Young America's Foundation conference in Santa Barbara, California and listened to people like Dennis Prager speak. And um, they have the Reagan Ranch Center there. And then they had the Reagan Ranch. And that really like changed my like, it was like the moment where I was like, oh, duh, like, this is obviously what I should be doing. Like, I was always debating in high school, loved, nice. like, the debate classes that I was in, um, loved, like, I almost wanted to be a lawyer, but then I went to college and was like, I would prefer not to do more schools, but I did, like, teen court and, like, all wow. this kind of, like, I went to law camp in high school. Wow. <laughs> Stanford. No way. <laughs> and I won all of my cases, I will say. No way. Yeah. So, I, it, it was more like a, of a, I thought I was on a path to be a lawyer, and then I got to college and was like, eh, don't really want to do more school. And then my parents' deal was like, we'll help you pay for college, but you have to major in business. And then that didn't go very well. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like stumbled into it. But then once I realized, oh, yeah, this is what I want to do. Like it wasn't necessarily just about journalism. It was more about like debate and okay. finding arguments and looking at the facts of something. And then um, got into broadcast journalism and into the um, the local student TV station. And I started like a a little show there, like a weekly brief where I would talk about like what the student government was doing, what the state government was doing, and then what they were doing in DC. So it was like a three level tier thing of informing people about what was going on. Um, And then I moved to DC for a summer to work for Town Hall Magazine and Mm townhall.com as an intern. Mm -hmm. Lived in DC for the summer, stayed at GW University, like dove in headfirst into all these different places. And then went back to finish my senior year in college and continued working for free from afar. And at the time, it was great because John McCain was running for re-election. He was, or he was, he was running for, this was like right after he ran against Obama okay. uh, and lost. But he was running for re-election in the Senate. So like Sarah Palin was in town. And there was all this really controversial immigration legislation that passed. There was a lot happening on the ground. So mm-hmm. it was like writing a lot of stuff and getting published in this magazine that sold in bookstores all over the country. Like Barnes & Noble and oh, Borders. Wow. And it was like really cool. And I'll never forget that the student newspaper was allegedly looking for more and more conservative perspective for a mm-hmm. column. So I like walk in for my interview and I have all these printed magazines that are sold in bookstores. I'm like a nationally published, you know, writer and uh, they, they didn't hire me. <laughs> I was yeah. so pissed. <laughs> Seriously, that was, you know, that's 10 plus years ago now. Yeah. Imagine with today. Right, exactly. So that was kind of how it started. And then after I graduated, I... um my first big viral story was about our, our one of our our uh, graduation speakers and how she essentially like called the entire the entire audience racist over this again this immigration legislation and it like went viral and with everything and so that was like the first big story that I had. And that was town hall. That was a town hall, and then I moved to DC and again just like 
was going to everything I could, was like on Capitol Hill all the time, listening to hearings, like all this kind of stuff and really just like getting my hands dirty and like going to the border and doing some reporting from there. And I don't know if you know Matt Thomas from Pinal County Sheriff's yeah. Department, good friend of mine. He took me on like a ride along and I did like all this really cool stuff. And, so um, for town hall though now, for town so hall. you've graduated, yep. you're in DC, yep. full time town they, hall. They hired me, they gave me a job. Um, I was making zero dollars basically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just like working really hard. I was there all by myself. Moved across the country, you know, didn't know anybody outside of like my coworkers, yeah. and was just like in this beast of a place where there's just like so much happening all the time, and um, and yeah, then I just like started from there and. Um, pretty quickly, I got into my first, what, what eventually became my first book, this fast and furious scandal where yeah. ATF was like knowingly giving firearms to Mexican cartels and then actually blaming it on like gun owners and, and gun shops in Arizona when they were facilitating the whole thing. And so that really kind of like kicked things off and yeah. that got me into more TV and I used to go on CNN and MSNBC and CNBC and, uh, Larry Kudlow, I used to do his CNBC show a lot. So he kind of helped me get off the ground with a TV nice. thing and, um, and then my first big Fox show was Bill O'Reilly, and that was for my book. But the first Fox show I ever did, this is actually kind of a funny story, was, was Red Eye. So I was in D.C. for CPAC, which is this big conservative political action conference every year. And I went to CPAC all the time. And I was like the student who was always there trying to like get a job where all of my other friends were like partying and hanging out. And I was like <laughs> working it with the resumes and yeah. the cars and all that stuff. And so I'm in this I'm working as a young professional. I'm in this like cocktail hour afterward and I see Greg Gutfeld and his producer and Andy Levy walk into this packed room. Like it was so hot. There's don't the line for drinks was like forever. And I'm like, Oh my God, I gotta go talk to him. I gotta introduce myself. I gotta give him my car, blah, blah, blah. And so I'm inching closer to them and I can hear Greg complaining about how they're going to leave because the drink line is way too long. And so I'm like, oh, no, they cannot leave. And so I, like, push my way over to them. I'm like, I'll get you a drink. What do you want? And so then I cut the line, got them a drink, came back, and gave them their drinks, and they invited me on Red Eye. Nice. <laughs> that so is awesome. It was great. That was a great show. So then... Greg's hilarious. I finally get my chance to go on Red Eye, and they don't pay for you to travel to New York. So I bought a bus ticket for $40, and I got on the bus. And it's a six-hour bus ride to New York. It's usually, like, five, but it's always six. And halfway through the bus ride, a tsunami hits Japan, and they cancel my my appearance on the show because Ugh. it's now this like twenty four seven news cycle that they have to go with, and so now I I'm like on my way to New York, <laughs> I'm on a bus. I don't you know my oh, brother. I was, I was staying with my brother in his mm-hmm. dorm room because he was going to school at a university in Hoboken, New Jersey, which is right across from Manhattan. So I'm staying with my brother in his dorm room where he lives with two other guys in like this <laughs> shoebox. So I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to go to New York for the weekend because my bus ticket is until Sunday. And now I don't have this red eye hit. And I'm like all bummed out. They're not going to invite me back. And so eventually they did invite me back, got back on the bus, went up to New York. And what they do pay for is a car to take you where you want to go after the show. And so I'm like, okay. So I'm in this like fancy town car. It's like the first fancy car I've ever been in. I have a driver. It's really exciting. And he takes me to Hoboken to drop me off again at my brother's <laughs> apartment, right? Or his, his dorm room. And the driver goes, 
are you sure this is where you want to be dropped off? And I was like, yeah, this is my, my brother. I'm staying with my brother in his dorm, but thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> so I've paid my dues, I would say. And nice. I've, I've made it past the sleeping in the dorm room. Phase, yeah, yeah. But, you don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, but it was, it was fun. Yeah, and I remember the day that my boss at Town Hall told me, Katie, you can start taking the train. The bus tickets are starting to embarrass me. <laughs> so, nice. so yeah, I used to ride the bus to New York. Yeah. That is wild. Mm-hmm. And do you remember where you were when you first heard about Fast and Furious or like what, what made you want to go down that path and start investigating it and it yeah. happened right away after, right when you heard what was going on and then you just like dove in or did it take a little while? while so I remember seeing, I remember seeing Cheryl Atkinson at CBS who really, um, was one of the, one of the bigger journalists who initially started with the story and she got her information. I'll talk about it in a second, but I remember her interviewing John Dodson who was an ATF agent. He mm-hmm. was a whistleblower and he had been talking to his superiors about this situation where they were asking them to, to just let these guys go with these guns. And he kept warning, like somebody's going to get hurt. Like someone's going to get killed. Like we're giving guns to narco terrorists and we're not telling border patrol about it. Like we're not communicating with anybody. So we're seeing that and being like, that doesn't make any sense. And at the same time, when this was going on, you had the Obama administration pushing this narrative that there was this like iron river of guns flowing from the United States to Mexico. 90% so, or something like 90% that. 90% yeah. of guns that are found at crime scenes in Mexico come from the United States. They just and kept so, repeating it over and over. And they kept repeating it. And, and the um, Janet Napolitano, when she was a Homeland Security Secretary, flew to Mexico. This is what she said in her statements. Eric Holder, same thing. This was like the whole administration-wide narrative that we needed more regulation and more gun control in the United States because we were responsible for guns showing up at crime scenes in Mexico. So when John Dodson came out to say that they were the ones who were sending thousands of guns to Mexico, that was kind of the moment where it was like, okay, there's a bigger thing going on here. Had you already been... Just some small ATF field office in Phoenix with a rogue operation. Like this is obviously connected to a bigger yeah. uh, issue that the administration is pushing. So that's, that was really what happened. But Cheryl actually got her information from David Cadrea, who had a, um, a gun blog and, and they were talking about this happening on these like, like not Reddit, but like on a, like a, something like that. Some blog. Yeah. Like a bulletin board blog uh-huh. where people are kind of talking back and forth and she picked it up. And then ended up interviewing John Dodson, who then opened kind of the floodgates of Congress looking into it, which were, you know, a series of hearings held and Eric Holder eventually being held in contempt, um, voted in contempt, criminal and civil contempt by Democrats and Republicans. Oh, wow. Um, but yeah, w- once I connected the dots between the narrative that they were pushing from DOJ, DHS, the White House, um, and then what these ATF agents were saying about what they were doing. And of course, the reason we all found out about this was because Border Patrol agent Brian Terry was killed. And that's when John Dodds came out to speak about it and said, like, <laughs> I'm done, like, staying silent about it. I've tried to go through my chain of command. Nobody's listening. And they're now they're covering it up, which they were. <laughs> and so, yeah. And you, so you were aware beforehand uh, that the, the, about that narrative you, you already investigated, hey, this 90% of guns in Mexico thing. Was it, was it, did you find out about that afterward? Did you do that investigation afterward after you heard about this whistleblower? Or was it already kind of something you were looking into with other articles you'd written? It was something that was kind of already like swirling because there was all this talk about, yeah. And that's why it was like when, when Brian Terry was killed and then it was revealed that ATF had been 
running guns into Mexico, then there were bigger questions about, well, if an ATF field office is doing it, then who's directing the field office to do it? And is the U.S. Attorney's Office involved? And they were. And then, of course, everyone in D.C., as they always do, was, you know, they, they, they acted like it was a rogue operation in Arizona and it wasn't approved. But then you do some research and find documents that prove that they were very much aware, aware of what was going on and that there mm-hmm. were briefings at headquarters and there's all, entire briefing uh, packages and presentations about why they named it the way that they did and handwritten notes on mm-hmm. things and all that kind of stuff. So this narrative about, you know, Mexico and the, the policy towards Mexico was very much focused on gun shops in America. And they were trying to regulate how many rifles you can buy as an individual. Uh, there's a waiting period, that kind of thing. And then you find out that this didn't just happen in Arizona. It actually happened in Texas and it happened in Florida and it was happening all over the place. I mean, this book was just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of everything that went on. Yeah. So, And do you remember what, what show uh, Cheryl Atkinson was on when she was doing that on she CBS? She was on CBS. Um, it was just a package. Like she was presenting it to other like evening news program. Thing. Yeah. Okay. So you heard about it there. And for yeah. people that don't know, and what's crazy to me is that so many people have either forgotten or it's just, oh yeah, I heard about this Fast and the Furious thing, Obama administration and next shiny object. Yeah. Like right. in, the, in, in reading your book, uh, knowing about just how bureaucracies work in general mm-hmm. and how these people could just lie over yeah. and over again with a straight face. Like when you go in here and you talk about, or uh, when you take that transcript of uh, Daryl Issa talking, questioning Holder mm-hmm. and those answers, like it's absolutely incredible. Right. This yeah. blatantly lying, not just to, the committee, but to the American people and to uh, uh, Ryan Terry's family. Right. Yeah. And every, it's just, it's astounding to me, but yeah. it shouldn't be surprising. I mean, that's what government. Well, does. and then they were punishing reporters. They were, they were, DOJ was, was putting people like me on lists to, to watch us, to, to make sure that they knew what kind of, you know, what, when we were writing and they were actually employing uh, left-wing media hit, hit pieces like, like media matters, for example, they would send them information and say, can you address this? And then all of a sudden, media, I mean, the emails are there. And then the media matters would write a hit piece on someone who was writing about this story or trying to discredit them or that kind of thing. Um, so in other things, like I remember this distinctly is when I went to an ATF briefing at ATF headquarters because they were giving a presentation about new Mexico numbers and recovered firearms in Mexico. And... During the, after the presentation was over, I just said, okay, so how many of these guns were part of Fast and Furious? Because you keep saying you're finding American guns at these these crime scenes in Mexico, but you guys trafficked thousands of guns to Mexico. So how many of these are part of that operation and how many are not? Of course, I didn't answer the question. And uh, when I was leaving, these two ATF agents like blocked, they were like blocking the the stairway to get out of the building. So I had to like go around them and then they watched me leave. And then I went to a book party um, for a friend and these two ATF agents just like show up there. And I, and I don't remember if they were invited or not because it wasn't my party, but then they just like cornered me to talk about the operation. And not in a good way. Like yeah, an intimidating and, yeah, way. And they were like not trying like, hey, to be like, well, you know, something. yeah, they weren't like giving me information. Like, well, you know, it wasn't as bad as you, you portray it as and trying to like talk to me about it at this book party in D.C. It was just weird. Yeah. So things like that started happening. Um, but I can't, I mean, what they were doing to like people like John Dodson, like moving them around, reassigning them, you know, retaliating against their, them and their families. I mean, what the guys who came out publicly 
to talk about did was, I mean, the things that they had to go through as a result of that, just awful. And I think about the last like four years and all the anonymous sourcing that we've seen in media. And there's, there's obviously a need for anonymous sourcing. There's some of it in this book, but these guys like laid it all on the line to like talk about what was going on and they were punished for it. And so just yeah, these whistleblower protection things all of a sudden don't apply right. to uh, if you're on the, the opposite exactly. side of a, a certain narrative or issue. Yeah. And for people that don't know about Fast and the Furious, um, uh, it's like a, a five minute rundown. So essentially what it is, is the government paying people, I guess, to go into these gun stores, buy 20 rifles, whatever it was, with cash and telling the owners, hey, you better cooperate with us. Don't don't say anything about this. Let them go. It's all part of this this operation. Uh, yeah. And did that over and over and over again. Thousands of, uh, of of weapons end up out there, out of our control. Yeah. And they want to like trace the idea. And the Bush administration had something earlier, right? That was kind of similar. But then they're like, no, this is not right. Shut it down or something yeah. like yeah. Before. It, and they were there was more tracing of the guns, but it was like a, a an initial operation that got blown up into a bigger one under Fast and Furious. Basically, essentially, what ATF did was they had informants, but they also had, they knew that there were certain people in Phoenix who were working on behalf of drug cartels and paying cash. So they would come into these gun stores and say, I need 40 AK-47s. And the gun shop owner would call ATF and be like, hey, like, this is weird. Like, what should I do? And they would say, well, you need to sell this guy because we're watching him. And we're tracing the guns. They kept, were promised over and over again that they were going to trace the guns, that they knew where they were going, that they weren't going to let them go south into Mexico. That was like the deal. And so the gun shop is like, okay, well, I want to help. And like ATF controls whether they operate or not. They control their license. They control when they come in and get inspected. Like it's basically like dangling it out in front of them. Like, oh, you don't want to cooperate with us? Well, we know how to shut your business down. So you have these gun shops cooperating and allowing these straw purchasers, which is illegal because they knew this guy was buying guns for cartel. He's not buying 40 AK-47s for himself, right? Um, to come in, pay with cash, and then he would leave with a truck full of guns. And then ATF would sometimes follow them to like a stash house. Sometimes they wouldn't. Sometimes they knew that they were going across the border and they wouldn't do anything about it. And they weren't t- telling Border Patrol about it. So they did that like 2,500 times. They, they trafficked thousands of guns, like 50 calibers. One of the 50 caliber rifles that was found in El Chapo's lair <laughs> was from Fast and Furious. Like it was trafficked as part of this program. Um, and so what they said was, well, we keep finding these, gu-. the narrative was, and the Washington Post did a big story about this, that, you know, we're finding all these guns in Mexico at crime scenes that are traced back to these gun shops in Phoenix. But what the Washington Post wasn't told by the same ATF uh, supervisors, not the agents, but the supervisors who are quoted in the story, they say, well, that's because people are, you know, taking advantage and buying guns in America under our loose gun laws and, and trafficking them to Mexico for cartels, all the while they were the ones who were initiating the trafficking, paying the traffickers, purposely allowing these guns to go south. And then when they show up at bloody crime scenes where people are murdered, like hundreds of people are murdered in Mexico, they blame it on the gun dealers who were intimidated into doing this in the first place because ATF told them to do it. And so they had this narrative about, we keep finding all these guns at these crime scenes and they're tracing back to these gun stores. And it's like, well, they're chasing back to the gun stores because you're selling, you're telling them to sell them. 
It's so crazy. Do you think that that was that the whole the intent the whole time was to just be able to prove their narrative of these ninety percent of guns at crime scenes there, and they just wanted to let's prove this, let's get some data on it, so we're going to make it happen ourselves, or was it just something that got out of out of control? And happen to support their well, uh, their narrative. Based on the email traffic that I saw, they were doing this to push more regulation. Like yeah. we need to be able to prove that guns from America are going to Mexico. So let's put. Them they in would there. say that the reason they implemented Fast and Furious is because they wanted to trace guns into the cartel so they could get to the top of the cartel. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that's not how it works. And if they were really interested in tracing guns, they would have put tracking devices on them. And they did it on like one or two and guns they did or something. It. They did it on two out of 2,500. And it was like John Dodson making like, you know, a homemade GPS device that died a day after the gun was gone. So, so their their whole facade was, well, we our plan was to trace these guns into Mexico, to trace where they were going and to, to make it up through the cartel to take down the cartel. But they weren't tracing anything. They were losing track of things. They weren't working with Mexican authorities to track any of this stuff. They didn't tell Mexico about it. And so if you're really trying to trace guns in Mexico to through a cartel, you might want to have some like law enforcement in Mexico helping you with the program. They never did. But then there's emails saying, well, we can use this now to push for this regulation that limits the number of firearms that people can buy at one time. So crazy. So... It I'm, sounds like fiction. It sounds like a great fictional yeah, novel for yeah. me to investigate, but mm-hmm. it happens to be true. Yeah. And then these people that that were involved in this, what was what happened to them after like today? Like this was this book was we wrote this in 2011, 2012. 12, 12. Yeah. And so today, like obviously we have Obama holder, nothing. Um, like everybody else, that supervisor in uh, in in Phoenix, like is that guy still there? Is oh, no, still... they brought him back to what we call headquarters in DC, the mothership. Uh-huh. So you know. Like most government bureaucrats who screw up, they were they failed up, and there hasn't been punishment for them. They're still he's working. Still there. The U.S. attorney in Arizona did resign. I don't know what he's doing now, um, but a lot of these guys are still still there. They're just Bill continuing still on, there. Just collecting yeah. their checks. And this was like one of many scandalous things. I mean, there's other issues too, but. I like how you talk about it in this book also just about uh, that bureaucracy and that change from the guys that were there in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. into the early 90s. And then we have we have Waco, we have Ruby Ridge, we have a few things. And those guys that were essentially street cops become uh, get replaced with administrators. Right. And in any big bureaucracy, anybody who's been in the, the military or, or uh, uh, government circles knows uh, how that works. Yeah. And so you now you have these guys without street experience making decisions. Uh, based on no actual experience at the tactical level. Well, but and worse, making decisions based on how far up they can climb the bureaucratic uh, ladder. So they're not making decisions because they're interested in making the, the street agent's life easier or making the right decisions on the street. They're making decisions based on how they can make it up through headquarters. Like, how can I get appointed or, or not appointed, or uh, promoted to, um, you know, acting whatever yeah. of, or acting in charge of agent special agent in charge of of the phoenix field office like it's it's not about necessarily what's going on on the ground and what through the process of getting to know a lot of the people i talked to for this book it became i call it the suits versus the boots like the the guys with like the scuffed up shoes and wearing the jeans and those the street guys i was talking to and the old school guys like ben cephalu and jay dobbins who were there before this kind of bureaucratic transition happened in the early 2000s with all these screw-ups with Ruby Ridge and 
and Waco, um, you know, they have a very different aura about them than the guys who like cornered me at the book party in DC with yeah. their fancy suits on and their, their shine shoes and their bat, their, you know, shiny badges, just a very different way of looking at things. And the guys on the street are the ones who are dealing with the consequences of the actions that are being and the decisions that are being made in these offices by these other people. Now that's not to say that's how everybody is, but it was a stark, stark contrast between the two. Oh yeah, same thing in the military. You get those guys at the the top levels essentially become politicians in uniform, right. both officer and enlisted. Yeah. When you get up there, uh, and they're making decisions. Uh, they're so far removed from those tactical level. Maybe even if they came from that tactical level, but they're so far removed from it at right. that point. They're essentially politicians in uniform. Is how I and the priority is just them. to keep benefiting from that system rather than kind of getting back into seeing what the consequences and not being removed from those actions would be. It's, it's about getting further and further away from the actual decisions that are being made in split, you know, split seconds on the street. And so that was like really opening to see how that process played out for sure. And was this your first time dealing? Did you have a, what do you, what do you call a confidential informant? Uh, like anonymous sources. Do you have guys that sat down with you and they're like, Hey, I, you know, don't, please don't use my name, but Mm -hmm. boom. Uh, was that your first time doing that or have you done that before in other yeah, stories? Yeah, it was like my first time really kind of understanding that I, you know, would have to make decisions about if someone came to ask my who my sources were mm-hmm. and I, I would have to tell them I'm not telling them. Right. And what was that that was going to mean for me? And that was definitely something that was potential given the way that the Justice Department responded to the whistleblowers who came forward publicly and to the the um, the journalists who were writing about it or asking questions about it. Uh, that never happened, but it was definitely like, okay, this is a serious situation. It wasn't just like some political operative coming to me with dirt and saying, I don't want to be named because I, mm-hmm. it might ruin my career or something. It was like people with real information who would be in danger if you mm-hmm. published their name or right. gave something away, like in a detail that made it obvious who you were talking to. So, yeah, it was interesting, like Did- meeting with people, you know. Did you ever do a phase Off like the that, that intimidation? Were you ever were you ever intimidated by that, or were you always? Did you ever take a second and be like, "Wait a second, am I doing not not am I doing the right thing?" But hey, is this safe? Like what I'm doing? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, but that's you know it's part of the job. Yeah. So oh, that's wild. And yeah. then yeah, I think you, know, you look back at things that you do, and you're like, that that could have gone very <laughs> wrong. Yeah, <laughs> could have gone very wrong. Like I'm going to meet with this stranger that I've never met before. Did you meet in weird places? It was like it was like a movie. Did you yeah, like not not like a ton, not a lot, but yeah. like a few times. And you're like, okay, this this could have gone very very poorly. Oh, that's so wild. But, and then so you did a series of articles on it first for Town Hall. Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And then yeah. when did you get the idea that hey, I should turn this into a book? Or did someone suggest it? Actually, how did that work. I had no plans for a book and the publisher called and said hey do you want to turn this story into a book how did they and, uh, find you so they just call- Regnery is um, a long time DC more right leaning publisher mm-hmm. and um, yeah I mean I had been talking about it in lots of different media forums okay. at Town Hall I was on Fox talking about it um, this was like prior to becoming a contributor there um, so it was just it was just like something I was doing a lot of. Yeah. And it was such a big story that it really did warrant a book. I just mm-hmm. I didn't think that was like what I plan on doing. Um, but they just called and said, Do you want to put it in book form? And I was like, Sure. Sounds great. <laughs> and so they gave me three months <laughs> to oh, get wow. it done. But the thing is I already had like all this work that I had done. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of like rewrote everything and put it in one place. Um 
Yeah, and I had, you know, I had a lot of help from other writers and journalists, too, who had been researching and writing about this stuff, like, yeah. way before I ever did. So they were helpful as well. That's amazing. And then what yeah. happened to Jay? Was it uh, Jay Dobbins? What, yeah. What happened? Where is, where is he now? And uh, for a little bit more background on him, what is it? They went to burn his house down. Yeah. And, like, all sorts yeah. Of, like, craziness. So, Jay, I, I should get in touch with him. I haven't talked to him in a while, but um, I think he's still in, in Arizona. And he, Jay's story, he he also has a bunch of books. He has um, a, he his first big undercover job as an ATF agent was going undercover in Hell's Angels. And the first day on the job ever for him as an ATF agent, he got shot in the chest and almost died, like wow. in a trailer park. <laughs> wow! Welcome to the ATF. <laughs> yeah, so his his book is awesome. Uh, Jay Dobbins, you should look it up. It's it's amazing. It's about his life as an ATF agent. Did a lot of undercover work. Um, but going back to the the same players we're talking about, who are corrupt and all that, who are involved in Fast and Furious, they basically tried to frame him for burning his own house down. Yeah, and he sued them like for over a decade over it. And I've written a lot about it. You can see it. Um, I can send you the link or something, but it's the story is just crazy. Like his house gets, he was undercover with Hell's Angels. He gets found out that he's an operative. So he gets all these threats from Hell's Angels and other gangs and ATF doesn't do anything about it. And then because his house. Because he's already been, a, he's already a whistleblower at this point. He's already a troublemaker. Because he had like spoken up about a few things, you know. Yeah. And all of a sudden his house gets burned down while his wife and kids are home. They got out, thank God, but mm -hmm. his house gets burned down and then ATF doesn't want to do an investigation and then turns around and falsely accuses him of arson on his own, on yeah. his own home. Yeah. I can see. I mean, I can see how they do that. Yeah. You know, it's just that's so basically crazy. what happened. He was getting all these threats. And so that's insane. Yeah. Oh, man. So, so this book comes out and then what was, were some of those reaper like, was everything about the book, positive and that people are like wow this is amazing uh or were, was there any backlash either personally or professionally um after this book was published um i mean doj didn't like that the book was published um but that was like the extent of i think the negativity i think that people were grateful that the story was or at least most of the story was in one place because it was a hard to digest as incremental pieces yeah. um but yeah the feedback was really good and um People wanted to read it, and I was just happy to be able to get the story into another medium. Yeah. You know, because I already had it in digital form. I was talking about it on radio and TV, but it was really nice to have everything kind of in one compact place. Yeah. Um, and for me, it was it was just about like justice for like my what I could do and what I could help do for um, Brian Terry's family, and mm -hmm. just letting people understand what happened because they went through so much and they were lied to, and things were covered up and. I think it was just last year that the final, uh, his final murderer was finally uh, extradited from Mexico. Um, and so they just been through so much and I just felt like they deserved for that story to be told of all of the, um, not even incompetence, but like corruption that occurred surrounding mm -hmm. what happened and it could have been prevented is the thing. And I still think there's a lot that we don't know about what happened. Like how many exact rifles were there? How many exact that and like you know? And what happened was he was ambushed as border patrol agent yeah. um, in Arizona mm -hmm. and was ambushed. And one of the rifles used in that ambush was part of this Fast yeah. and the Furious right. operation. Yep. And then his family wasn't told about the, everything. It's, it's, things slowly start leaking out here and there. More yeah. whistleblowers, and that was really the like the impetus behind more people coming forward. If, if yeah, because the email traffic shows them like c covering it up. It shows them panicking about the fact that this trace on a gun that was used to kill a border patrol agent 
came back to their operation. And everybody lied about it. And then it. everybody, everyone lied about it, started lying about the it. Baltano, and then all of a sudden the Holder. operation gets shut down. This, now that they've shut it down because someone's been killed, but they're not talking about why they're shutting it down. And the reason why stuff started coming out is because John Dodson came forward to talk about what they were doing and what led to Brian Terry's death because John Dodson knew that the trace came back showing wow. it was one of their guns. So if he hadn't operations. stepped forward, people still might, they, this family would still be searching right. for answers or maybe yeah. it would just be, Oh, it was a, it was a, an AK. Maybe it was from the U S but it wasn't from, from us. They right. could just continue. They would have, they would, yeah, they would have said that it was a border patrol agent killed with a firearm that was purchased at a gun store in Arizona yeah. without telling the whole backstory. Um, so, you know, I still think that they don't have the justice that they deserve. I think Eric Holder continued to lie to them, didn't give them any respect, um, tried to punish people for getting them answers. Um, but, you know, this was my small way to contribute to trying to get some kind of accountability. And I think we got a little bit. I mean, Holder will fail up as well, but, you know, he's the only attorney general to be held in contempt. So that's something small. And was that from uh, Daryl Ice's uh, mm -hmm. questioning? His investigation. Yeah. yeah. So it just, it was a lot of information. And, you know, every time they would ask for documents, they'd come back with like, there's, I think I have some in here. It was like pages just black ink uh -huh. where like they just wouldn't, you know, and Eric Holder continued to deny under oath that he had nothing to do with it. He didn't know anything about it. But then we like find memos with his name on it, like talking about the operation, uh -huh. you know. Um, and, and he denied all of that also while they still have this narrative going that like Mexico has a gun problem because we're, you know, we're the, we're the source. Yeah. So he obviously knew about it. And then it would actually went into the white house because, you know, people in the white house are working on Latin American uh, issues. Like we're having meetings and it's just a lot more that we don't know. And then once the name of the guy in the white house came out, who was associated with this operation, which the white house denied, they knew anything about, they like sent him to Iraq. And, like, put him at a desk and, like, took his phone away so no one could talk to him. Wow. Like, they shipped him out. And then, like, Obama said that he didn't know anything about it. But then all of a sudden he's invoking executive privilege so that nobody can see the documents that Congress wants. Yeah. But, so. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. So this is the book right here. Yep. And I love the cover. So who... Uh... Who did your cover? Is that your publisher? Ragnarie did it. Yeah. yeah. That is an awesome cover. Yeah, it's a great cover. I love the AK. Yeah, it looks, it's, it's sweet. And it's that uh, Mexico flag yep. colors on cool. there. Yeah. So they did an awesome job with that. And then follow yeah, on to that it. was cool. uh, Assault and Flattery. How many years did that come out after this? Uh, when Assault and Flattery was 2017. Yeah. So a few years after yeah. mm -hmm. after this one, so that one is is yeah. out there too. Yeah, my it's wife very has it different. Right now. A very different book. <laughs> and, <laughs> but and, and going forward, what? Uh, so what are plans? Other plans for another book at any point? I I have some ideas. Um, you know, with the news cycle, this when I wrote this book, media was very different even just ten mm. years ago than it is now. And now, if you're writing a newsworthy book things just move so quickly that by the time you get it published, it's old. So there's this like struggle about, you know, how you kind of write that, at least for me, uh -huh. you know, how to kind of change your writing style to fit with the times and how quickly things need to be out and that kind of thing. Um, but I have some ideas. Yeah. And we'll right see. now you're on Fox all the time now. <laughs> like every time my wife and I walk by, you know, the TV is it's like, been oh, fun. Katie's on. Yeah, it's so, been good. Yeah. So, and what a crazy time to be on. So, yeah, and I'm busier now with 
other work too. So writing a book has kind of taken yeah. the back burner, but getting the itch a little bit. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's we'll see. And yes, yeah, so you're on that's that a lot. You're still doing town town hall. Yep, still working at town hall. I have a great team there. Got all kinds of things. We've grown so much and got good reporters doing lots of good stuff. And that's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. yeah town hall has grown. You're on Fox all the time. I'm so excited for whatever everything that you do yeah it's been fun uh, so coming, that's coming next yeah i appreciate um, you having me on to talk about this book because it's been so long since i've been able to talk about that story but yeah no, it's, it's all coming one. back yeah yeah <laughs> so. no, i probably should have prepped you i didn't even know what we we're going to talk about <laughs> yeah, uh, no, today cool. but yeah no it's a, but it, it in a microcosm like this book is it's yes it's about fast and the furious but more than that it's about government ineptitude mm -hmm. uh it's about uh you know politicians it's it's a it's about that whole system where people fail up yeah um this bureaucracy that uh, can crush you um if you're at that tactical level right. and see something that's not right yeah um so it applies you know not just to this imagine and imagine all the things that we don't even yeah know about that there wasn't that uh uh you know the jobbins to come out and say and and blow the whistle on what's going on here yeah i mean they're imagine just how much goes on each and every day that we don't even know about well the thing is is you know there was a bunch of documents that were held under executive privilege that president trump i believe was going to release mm. but then like they never get released yeah and then when he called be like where are the documents it's like they still get caught up in this system where you can't get them yeah and so you know that's frustrating too it's like the question of how much we don't know well that we can't answer that because even if they declassify or take the executive privilege off of it doj still won't release it it's so crazy and, and there's obviously reasons why what are those reasons yeah what are they who are they protecting yeah. like some, right. some of these things like these, all these documents were supposed to be even like jfk documents yeah. assassination documents trump was supposed to declassify right. a couple of years ago and i think that cia came in and sat down and Explained why it was still right. uh, with the protecting sources and methods. That's the, right. the catchphrase. That's always they, the catchphrase. Uh -huh, yeah. Gotta protect sources, sources and methods. Uh -huh. and you're like, yeah. What is what? Uh, you know, I can Google like half of this, but it just <laughs> yeah, confirms. Right. But, yeah. uh, so, so I don't. I don't think. I think you did declassify some things, but not. We're I, getting more we're information about to. UFOs now, so I'm happy about that. <laughs> I think it's a distraction. <laughs> it's a distraction. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, news business wise, like what? Um, so, you, so you've. Know, been in this for a little while yeah. now and seen how things have, have changed over the last decade and, and uh, where things are going with this new administration. Um, I guess I get asked this question all the time, like, you know, what do you think about the, what, about the future? What do you think about mm -hmm. for our, our kids and, and grandkids? What are we turning over to them? What kind of a country are we <laughs> handing over to them? What kind of freedoms are oh. they going to have going forward? Um, not just Second Amendment-wise, but First Amendment-wise. Yeah. Um, just anything. What, what kind of a world are we... Are, we, are they going to inherit from us? Well, do we have like another 10 hours I on know. this we podcast? Might for, <laughs> we might save that for, for next time. I do worry about it um, just because we're in this this big tech uh, time where I get concerned about big tech being more important than the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, we're all in big trouble because we're beholden to companies and billionaires in charge of those companies who are enjoy being partners with an overreaching federal government that has the ability, as you said, to crush people. Um, and the principles of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are extraordinarily important for people, and they should apply at all times. But when you have attacks on the First Amendment and attacks on the Second Amendment, um, and you start pulling one or, one or two of those rights out, they all kind of fall apart. 
So, and this, you know, this justification of censorship, even if it's like a private company, is I think really alarming because, you know, how do people function if you can't have a bank account or you can't speak about anything or all of our media sources are through private companies, which is how it should be. But then we're only telling one side of the story or censoring information that is true, but harmful to a certain side of the political aisle. So therefore we're not going to talk about it. Um, I think it's like, it's, we're at a place where big tech is kind of overtaking some of these principles and this newer generation thinks that words are violence and I think that's a problem because if you think words are violence, then that leads to book burning and all kinds of very mm-hmm. bad places. So I'm worried about it. Yeah, no, definitely. I think about it now all the time that our kids are getting older and, and yeah. uh, you know, moving into this, the high school and beyond. It's uh, it's definitely concerning to me. And just, it's, I mean, I have a, great, a lot of great material for, for, uh, yeah, for your books. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because, it's, because it's so crazy to, to just see and these companies. Yeah, they might be based in Silicon Valley and, you know, in and around Seattle, but really they're not American companies. Yeah. Uh, they do not act uh, in the spirit of the First Amendment. Yeah. And right. uh, they're really, you know, global conglomerates essentially yeah. um so they're multinational companies uh not beholden to anyone now with the amount of power that they have so this next 10 years i am i'm well i'm very interested in what is going to happen during this very formative time in our country's history uh as it pertains specifically to that first amendment yeah um and second amendment well of course because those are two they're well, naturally the, combined yeah but, the irony is that a lot of these companies exist in the United States because of the first amendment. Exactly. That's... But then they don't respect the principle in terms of their own behavior. So they exist because of the freedom of the first amendment, but when it comes to, you know, incorporating that principle into their business, they don't, they don't respect it. And so that's a problem. You're right. It's a global issue. I, I think the the bigger the globe gets and more globalized it gets, the harder it is for people to be, patriotic or to hold on to the principles of their country and their constitution because that's nationalist right and we don't like nationalism no, no. and so um yeah i think those are really big challenges uh, for sure yeah no yeah. it's so sad and then you see the other part that's concerning to me growing up my mom was a librarian and i just grew up surrounded by books yeah. and reading and uh now we're seeing these these people and these companies that were uh traditionally guardians of that First mm-hmm. Amendment. Uh, we're seeing that uh, was publishing houses, yeah. uh, lawyers, classical liberals right. now all of a sudden Academia, are like uh, are in media. favor of censorship. Yeah. Like if you take that back 20, 30 years, it was just the opposite. You know, the New York Times saying that the government should create a reality committee, like oh, a realities right. are to like shame us all into submission about what their reality is. I mean, that's state run media propaganda from the New York Times, which is supposed to be this like independent newspaper. It's crazy. So, yeah. So, it's yeah. a little scary. It is. Yeah. What's and, inform- uh, misinformation and what's not, right? Yeah. That's but what the is question. cool, what is great is that you are out there essentially on the front lines of this. Ah. And uh, so. It's a fun gig. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I appreciate you uh, standing strong. My family appreciates you yeah. always uh, standing strong for, for these principles. So, uh, thank you very much for doing that. Yeah. Well, and thank you to you for your service to the country oh, of sure. literally being on the front lines well, for, for what we get to do. And 
for our ability to have this conversation right now. So oh, well, thank, thank you, you for so that. much. Yeah. Absolutely. And let's uh, let's do this again. But in the meantime, yeah. we're going to go out to the range and we're going to shoot some belt fed machine guns. Yeah. <laughs> and, machine uh, gun Friday. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And then we're going pheasant hunting. And then we're going pheasant hunting. So, so we'll do that. And uh, yeah, let's do this again and talk about uh, some more of this uh, next books, hopefully. Yeah. And uh, maybe you can give me again. some ideas. Oh, some I got some inspiration. Of ideas. <laughs> like, you, you give me a few every now and again, too. So yeah. thank you. Awesome. Hey, thank you to Sig for having me out to the headquarters area and showing me the factory and taking me to the range. And uh, it was amazing. So uh, thank you guys so much. And in honor of that, I want to talk a little bit about the P226. So uh, first off right here, this is a Vickers guide, uh, photos taken by James Rupley and Larry Vickers has a whole series of books. This one, volume one, six hour, awesome. And I happen to be featured in this. And it was such an honor for Larry to reach out and ask me to do that because uh, for my entire 20 years in the SEAL teams, I had a pistol like this, never far from reach. So when I first came in, we had these guys right here. So uh, Buds got there in January of 1997. By the summer of 1997, I was in third phase, which is the land warfare phase, and was introduced to this. So at the time, no rail on the pistol here. And we had an aftermarket um, thing from Surfire that went on here that turned into a rail and let us put a light on that. So uh, use this in real life for the first time doing shipboarding operations in the Northern Arabian Gulf. That's what we called it back then, right after September 11th to enforce the UN embargo against uh, Iraq for oil. So um, got to use that for the first time there for real. So that's that. And then later we got these guys. So notice rail. So you can put that light right on there. This one was updated by uh, Rodney May at Mid-South Institute of Self-Defense, a place we used to go to to train and did the grips, dropped in a short reset trigger, put on some fiber optic sights, and then this thing, legit, love this thing. It just feels like it's an extension of my hand. So thank you to Sig for sending me downrange with these for my 20 years in the teams. Thank you so much for listening to the very first Danger Close podcast and Ironclad original. For more, visit Katie Pavlich, P-A-V-L-I-C-H on the social channels. And you can check me out at Jack Carr, two R's, USA on social channels as well, or officialjackcar.com. And if you like the podcast, don't be afraid to leave a review and a good one. Thank you so much for listening. Catch you next time. In case you missed it, on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original, Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm-hmm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive or are you conservative? What box do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely. Are you an enemy and, or right, right. An How, Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person. Mm-hmm. Always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.